Someone asked me recently, what is the coolest part of my job as CEO of Clear Motive Marketing? I said, well, that's easy. The fact that every day I get to dig into our clients' businesses to learn not only what makes it tick, but what we can do as their partner to deliver the marketing that truly matters to their business. It's like being in a living, breathing case study every day. And for that, I am truly blessed. Hello, Collisions YYC listeners. It's with an overwhelming sense of pride that I wanted to share with you that the marketing agency that I had the pleasure of co-founding and leading is turning 15 years old. Yes, their motive marketing is 15. I wanted to shout out a huge thank you to all of our clients, past and present, as well as our vendors and all of the incredible team members we've worked with over the years to make this milestone possible. Check us out at clearmotive.ca to learn more about what we can do that matters to you. Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to my returning guest this morning, Mr. Jeremy McRae. How are you doing, Jeremy? I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on, man. It's been uh, January 2023 is when we aired this last episode, and we're circling back to see how the world played out. You are the, uh, it's a broad, broad statement, Director of Energy Research at Raymond James, and you live and breathe in this world every day, and we're in Western Canada, so you're a popular guy who probably has opinions that people love to hear about, and you've been doing this for a long time, so thanks for coming on and sharing some of your time, energy, and expertise with us on the show. So what's going on? How are things in the world of energy right now? What's happening in your world? You know what? Energy it's a good timing here. Energy and oil prices are hitting new highs here for the year. Uh, the market is coming back. There's lots of institutional interest in these names again, and it feels like the year is just getting started once again here. So it's pretty exciting times right now. I love it. I'm going to quote you here because I've because I, I have the luxury of having it in front of me. I've been doing this for 20 years, and this is the most optimistic I've ever felt about this. We got to have we got to have less volatility, less financial leverage, focus on profitability, less on growth, and create good value. You that was your statement back. I think it was like late December last year. Has that sounds like that has come true and continued to be true from the perspective of the last kind of 10 months, 11 months. Yeah. It, if only anything, I would say. It's even more optimistic here. You go a full year here since we since I put that statement out, and balance sheets are better. Valuations have still remained the same. These share prices have run, but a lot of it is just the deleveraging, the additional dividend payments that are coming through. And we typically do this executive management survey here every six months, and okay. we just published it here this week. And one of the more optimistic things that you see in this report is when they say, what do you plan to do with free cash flow here and and unexpected Mm -hmm. cash flow? And the response is, we plan to give out more dividends, more debt repayment, more buybacks, and very little increase in additional spending. And it just shows that the sector really is not what we are used to here that we've seen over the last 20 years, where these companies are focused on uh, you know, giving a lot of this excess cash flow back, and a reason, and that 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 is a big reason why we're seeing oil prices continue to move higher and higher here. Um, you know, and 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 like I said, we're reaching new highs here again this this year so far. Um, and has that just continued with that pace of like when we we got into our you know I was reading through our notes from our from our chat you know almost a year ago, ten eleven months ago, just how things have narrowed in. We went from you know four hundred fifty companies. Back, you know, back 2014, 2015 to a lesser number, but better run with a different focus. Is that continuing to just play out on that course or have we had any kind of new variables show up on the uh, in the game in the last kind of 11 months? I think what there's going to be a more and more focus on is LNG. And as that becomes more and more topical, there's more companies saying, how do we get a part of this agreement here? And what you really want to start looking at is being investment grade to be able to sign these long term agreements that these LNG players are looking for, which has really sparked a little bit more conversation saying, 
to get investment grade, we need to be about 200,000 BOE or so, and everyone find their dance partners here so we can start to try and get access to some of this LNG pricing. Here in Canada, you're typically looking at natural gas prices around 250 to 350, uh, but you look at LNG pricing globally, you're in the $15, $20, you know, MCF pricing range, which is a big, big difference here if you're able to actually get exports and and take advantage of those higher pricing that's a significant. So, is that leading to just more continuing more consolidation? Are you seeing like smaller or mid-sized players pooling and buying and acquiring to get up to that two hundred thousand BOE level? A lot of talk to get to there, and everyone's just trying yeah. to figure out how is the best way to do that. That we can still marry our quality acreage with somebody else who has quality acreage, and ultimately come okay. together. I'll go back to our executive survey here. One of the questions that we asked is how many companies are going to be sold or merged here in the next six months. Mm-hmm. And 93% of executives said that we expect two or more public companies to have sold or merged over the next six months. And it tells you that there's a lot more things going on behind the scenes than I think the public really probably realizes. And it's ultimately what you see with this consolidation is a better focus on more of the tier one locations. You probably have better access to debt capital markets, uh, lower interest rates, um, probably preferential treatment for services and the ability to handle probably inflationary pressures a lot better. So there's a lot of reasons right. to be bigger and there's that's being recognized by a lot of the, the management team, which ultimately just leads to better profitability for, for, uh, for investors. Interesting. Have you seen thoughts on or your perspective on some of the junior market, and which has been such a part of Western Canada, like you said, over the last 20 years, but that's shifted and really narrowed down. But there's still activity and you still hear good stories. And, you know, my wife worked at Spartan Delta. <clears throat> Obviously, that's a great story over the last couple of years. She's now at Logan, so a really fresh startup. So I'm kind of getting a window into that world and the, the, the kitchen table window that you get yeah. <laughs> when you chat about the end of the day. So you hear some of those plays that are getting a lot of um, attention, but they're very different than the 200,000 plus BOE plays that you're talking about. And then the super majors and all the way up the chain. There's two things that's actually happening here in the Western Basin that is really, besides all the commodity price increase in that, that's really improving things here. And so the one is these new completion technologies that we're seeing take place in the right. Montney. So a lot of the companies that we that operate in Canada, their primary focus is the Montney formation. And if you look at the completion technologies that we're seeing, a lot of these companies are able to put in higher intensity fracks. They're able to capture multiple layers of the Montney at the same time versus with like with one well versus two wells that you would need before. And ultimately, you're just getting better returns on those individual wells. And that is opening up a lot more opportunity and sometimes your tier two, three locations now suddenly become tier one locations. And uh, so not only do you have the Montney, but you also have this new drilling technology, basically essentially multilaterals. And we're starting to see some some new designs in terms of how those can play and unlock a whole bunch of old economic resources here. And so if you think about what the multilateral is doing for uh, the eastern area of Alberta, this is typically where you see a lot of heavy oil. It's where a lot of vertical wells were drilled back in the day. These multilaterals are going out now and just extending the economic boundaries of these old pools that we had drilled up over the last 20 years. And so not only do you have the technology improvement in terms of frack for the mining, but you're also seeing this new drilling design that's really unlocking a lot of these old historical plays that were developed vertic- vertically in Alberta. And the combination of both is setting this new land rush for effectively 
a lot of investors coming up and saying, not only the commodity price looks great, your balance sheets are in great shape, uh, and you got this new drilling design that really could open up a lot more uh, um, inventory than I think we ever realized. And if you take that one step further, in the U.S., we're kind of seeing the opposite. We're seeing recounts slow down. We're talking about inventory and all the major plays being depleted. And a lot of those investors are starting to look up into Canada here saying, you know what, you guys still seem like you're in the fourth, fifth inning here in terms of your development of your plays, where we're more in the eighth or ninth. And you're starting to see that rotation uh, of, of investors come up into Canada. Is that just the difference in the reserve itself? Because obviously the U.S., everyone has access to similar technologies, sometimes a little bit ahead, sometimes behind. But for the most part, that gets leveled out pretty quick. But is it just different formations and different geographies that we're dealing with? One of the biggest things that's held back Canada is our egress capacity. That's been plaguing the country for, you know, a decade plus. And there's always a hesitation of how much can we really grow here? But when you have TMX coming online here next year, uh, you've had a lot of infrastructure build for opening up the natural gas systems here in, in, in Canada. And, and you got LNG Canada coming on here pretty soon as well, too. There's been a lot of, uh, you know what, maybe we can start to grow a little bit more here. And let's start putting on a little bit bigger, you know, frack designs. Let's take some of the technology that we've seen in the U.S. and apply it up here. And it's working. And I think there's a bit of a, we, we've actually have a lot more inventory than I think was really appreciated back in the day. And so uh, the U.S. definitely were, are on the leading edge of new frack designs. And now we're starting to see that technology really come to the forefront here in Canada. Really interesting. So you think about, um, I get my, my, my reservoir kind of valued or evaluated at a certain time based on a certain technology. Now that same reservoir all of a sudden now appears larger or more accessible simply because technology is always, always scaling. Just an interesting, you know, from a balance sheet or just from an evaluation perspective on just how, oh, well, we had X, but new technology, now we actually have Y because of that. Yeah. We always do uh, an interesting thing every quarter. Every quarter, if you're an institutional investor, you have to report you know, your holdings of, of uh, all your stocks that you own. And one of the things that we've always tracked is we've looked at every fund that's ever owned a Canadian oil and gas company over the last five years. What are those funds doing and buying and selling now? Uh, and about 90% of the new buying that has come into the can- Canadian stocks over the last uh, couple quarters have been from U.S. investors. We actually still see net selling from U.S. funds. Uh, the rest is made up by international funds, but it's U.S. funds that are the majority of the buying. And the constant conversation that we have with these U.S. funds is inventory is being depleted. We think we're in the eighth or ninth inning down here in the U.S. And it looks like Canada is still has plenty of more upside here, especially now that the egress issues are being resolved. That is a powerful, I really appreciate you laying that, that dialogue out, out like that. Are you seeing, and we talked about this last time, there was a bit of an exodus from the space in terms of, you know, persona non grata in terms of we don't want to be seen investing in fossil fuels, just to be blunt about it. But you and I chatted about on our last call of like, well, yeah, but you can't deny some of the returns and some maybe, some people maybe either missed out or there was a significant fear of that because of some of those social pressures that led to some decisions that were very public and very put out there. Have you seen that shift or what's your, what are your, what are your optics around those funds that you're talking about? You know, I wish I had some, again, articulate some numbers, but you just feel that the pendulum has started to swing back a little bit here with the whole Russian Ukraine crisis. And I think there's been a bit more realization that, Instead of ESG, it's ESSG with the extra S now standing for security. And when you start to look at, you know, what Canada's done here in terms of 
uh, all the laws that we start to place and the net zero targets that we start to put in here. And there's still debate among a lot of this about how, how aggressive we want to be. But the goal is still the same here, where we still want to be net zero. And I think there is starting to be an understanding that, you know, for the most part, this is actually okay. You look at the um, the World Petroleum Congress going on right now here in Calgary, and you don't really see many protesters out there right now here either. Like, and, and a lot of the theme is about this renewable yeah. transition. And for the most part, everyone's kind of okay with it. Like, it's it's not this. It's it's not the 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 protests that you you would see with these other um, you know energy conferences that you would see worldwide it's 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 very tame here and I think there's just an understanding that we need oil and gas um, it will go away but it's not going away tomorrow and we still need to find a proper balance here and I think there's a bit of more realization about that and some real conversations that are happening now. Well, certainly this morning, right before our episode, I was like, you and I are joking. We we booked this months ago, not thinking about that this was going on in Calgary at this time. So CBC this morning was all over the event and the message coming out. I think it was one of the delegates from Saudi Aramco was like, hey, yeah, we know we need to move to net zero. We know we need to continue decarbonization, but let's be realistic that this isn't happening tomorrow and the world needs a high dense energy molecule well into the future. And I that was the main storyline that they were running this morning, which a couple of years ago, felt like that wouldn't have been the leading uh, quote that they were putting out there on the news. So I did notice it. It caught my attention this morning for sure. It's funny you see a lot of these organizations too, you know, I'm maybe picking on the IEA and they always have these charts every year they come out with their global, you know, you know, 25 year outlook. And it always just shows, it always just shows just the decline in oil demand that we, that they expect here for the world. And it's always, we're, we're at peak oil now, next year is going to be peak oil. And that constantly gets revised <laughs> up every single year if you go back to the last decade. And the problem that that only really does is oil and gas companies see that same message here as well, too. And the decline in, in how much they need to reinvest in the market doesn't quite match the decline that you'll see in demand. And so ultimately what you do is you start to see supply move down, uh, but demand not move down nearly as quick. And that ultimately just leads to these higher prices. And then yeah. when you combine that with, um, OPEC and 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 Russia basically control saying you know what we can actually control the price here now because we're not seeing this extra supply come on from the U.S. or Canada or the other OECD countries and that's okay. what you saw with Saudi here um, you know a few weeks ago just saying you know what, we're going to extend our million barrel a day cut all the way to December now it was supposed to be just a one month thing but I think they're kind of having some bit of confidence saying you know what I don't think anybody's going to actually move to you know replenish what we are cutting back here and we can actually right. now dictate and that's why you've seen oil prices move up about 35 percent just in the last few months so that's the uh the danger that we that we're seeing and ultimately this is just leading to more inflation which just creates a whole bunch of other issues that we're talking about here well, some of the inflation numbers came out and they said, you know, oh, things have gone down, but gas did not. Like the price at the pump and would seeing such a driver for people in terms of their costs. And like, well, the, you know, grocery store was stable or went down and they were trying to talk their way around the fact that that was the energy, the cost of energy was the main culprit. Hey, let's roll out our crystal ball a little bit here. You think about exactly the scenario you just talked about. We're not bringing on these alternative energy sources as fast as maybe we need to, or they're just not as efficient. I love the concept of how dense is your energy molecule and how much can you get out of it? It feels like... Like we could be putting ourselves in a, you know, a, a falsely created energy famine here in the next five years pretty easily if we're not careful. And I know I'm trading way out in left field right now, but I've had some chats recently that made me just go, 
Hmm. Is it fear mongering or are we really looking at a, 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 a is that graph going to inflect some point that we're not that it shouldn't <laughs> when it comes to access to high cost, high reliable energy? Yeah, it's it's good questions. And there's plenty of organizations who put out forecasts and smart guys, too, and, and ones with little bias here as well, too. And I find it interesting that almost every organization, if you look back at their track record of forecasts, um, everyone always wants to be optimistic and and and. Look, don't get me wrong. Everyone wants the, a greener planet. Like, there's nobody saying we don't want a greener planet. Completely. But it's just Completely. a reality of how um, where you, you know, how much of a bias do you have. And so, I'll, I'll point to the EIA, for example, uh, when they forecast how much uh, solar and wind po- projects are coming on here, they're constantly having to revise those numbers down. Especially uh, electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. How many electric vehicles are going to be sold this year? And it constainly gets and and their and their ten year outlook constantly gets revised backwards. Um, you look at coal retirements, uh, they're always expecting so much gigawatts to be retired every year, but that always just keeps getting pushed out, pushed out, pushed out. And we're just as much as we want to transition here, you're just seeing the past revisions always be revised revised out longer the, the, than, the than we're expected here. And yeah, it just yeah. it just goes back to the reality that yes, you know what, oil and gas is going to be around probably longer than I think everybody is expecting. And there's starting to be, as you know, getting back to the stocks, there's starting to be a, an acceptance that you're right, you know what, we aren't going to be going off fossil fuels nearly as quick as we want. I'll, I'll point to Norway as a, you're a good example here. 90%, 95% of the cars sold in Norway last year were electric vehicles. But okay. the oil demand has started to move down, but not nearly as much as I think anybody was expecting. And the reality is you still have a lot of uh, internal combustion engine cars still on the road there. But, you know, when the average age is 13, 14, 15 years for these type of cars now, uh, you just don't transition off that. And that's for a country that is very well off uh, and you just don't see that transition. But you go back to well-off countries uh, what well-off countries do is they fly a lot more. So then you got the aviation fuel that's being used, yeah. more travel, more larger homes that that require more energy. And so you you know your wealthy countries can afford the electric vehicles, but there's also a lot more energy demand that comes with you know a wealthy country here. And sometimes, let's be honest, there's a big difference between if we were telling a real story of a real narrative with a real time frame, that doesn't make for good news. That's not good rhetoric. That's not good political flag waving. Like there's other factors at play that I would say uh, can be easy to buy into. But when you step back and look at reality, this long, slow transition and making quote unquote better choices and looking to balance out our energy, like it's energy abundance, not and we just I hate this artificial idea of creating energy scarcity when maybe it doesn't have to be there. And and I don't want to doom and gloom, but I've had a few conversations lately. I'm like, hmm, we need to be really careful how serious the message, the 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 propaganda. I'm going to use that word is versus what's actually happening and the pace that that's going to take. <laughs> but anyways, I don't want to get too philosophical on that one. No, and the reality is, it's not so much going to be an energy transition; it's energy addition, and so additional energy um, really should be coming from solar and renewables and all that. And I don't think anybody would deny that and say, this is a good thing. We should be having more renewable sources come come on, on board here. And for, but let's not be naive that to think that it's going to suddenly replace oil and gas overnight or even in the next 10 years here. It, this is just going to right. take much longer than I think anybody would like. Like and, and, and again, it goes back to even oil and gas companies, they're made to seem 
as you know the boogeyman out there in terms of they're they're tone deaf in terms of climate, but they're not. They 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 also want a greener planet, but at the same time too, they uh, are a little bit more realistic in terms of you know what can we do here? Like it just just can't happen as as quick as we all would like to see it here. Well, and you see all the technologies you led to earlier that are are taking. Uh, reservoirs that maybe didn't that have either run their course with the older technologies uh, this is also just companies being more efficient and better using their dollars right to get more bang for their buck out of their assets which is good from an environmental perspective but also really good from an investment perspective <laughs> yeah and that's what i mean like it's just you're starting to see more interest come back into uh oil and gas you know there's um a couple funds that we've talked to here and this goes back to covid where you know post covid you know right after there's a lot of saying, saying, you know, we probably hit peak oil demand here. There's no point in investing in oil and gas stocks anymore. And the reality is, is oil and gas has performed quite well since COVID, you know, throughout 2021, 2022. And um, these funds have now started to come back into Canada. And, and you haven't talked to these funds for you know, five years. And it's suddenly saying, oh, Interesting. you're back. I thought you guys were completely out. And the conversation goes something along the lines of, you know, if we have so many of our investors who hold our funds, uh, selling down our funds, not wanting to invest with us anymore, and they're going to another competitor because they are invested in oil and gas, we can't change the world if no one invests with us either. And and there's also <laughs> the reality that follow follow the money. Yeah, and, and, and so a lot of the you know it was it was kind of cool to hate oil and gas, and now there's a bit of a reality saying you know what we maybe do have to be in oil and gas or at least some investments. You know, for the TSX composite, energy is still 18% of the index. Uh, it's come up from 10% back at COVID. Um, but it, it was as high as, you know, 30%, you know, you know, quite a few years ago. But there is still some room and it's still a major part of the, the, uh, the index if anybody wants to still, if you want to not be involved, that's some big misses that you could be potentially missing out on here. I really appreciate appreciate that perspective. And things do run their course and do have cycles. And it was very cool to hate on oil and gas. You like just, to, just it, was, it was it was very trendy <laughs> or off trend to to support it. What are you seeing kind of on the ground? I know you 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 talk to companies and, and funds on a global on a global scale. Let's bring it back to Calgary. We've got a pretty Western Canadian audience here on the show. What are you seeing in the market here? Are you seeing more? plays more juniors getting like are we spinning up or are we heading back down apart you talked about to be competitive or to take advantage of these certain opportunities you need to be bigger but small grows to big and small merges in and small goes that way are you seeing more of a trend back to maybe not where we were before uh, 10 years ago but what's the ecosystem looking like there when it's like the what's the farm team look like for some of these bigger acquisitions down the road yeah maybe we'll talk about the farm teams here these are typically your smaller half a billion dollar less companies one of the big things that's really emerged was these multilateral drillings. Before, if you wanted to be competitive and have the most economic, you had to probably be in the Montney. But what we're finding with these multilateral wells where you don't need to frack, um, you're just going after shallow, stacked heavy yeah. oil plays, even actually light oil pools here, is these wells only cost a million and a half dollars. Like You can raise a quick $10 million, typically you know, not, new, not really that hot, difficult here, and go out and drill five wells, and ultimately you'll typically see payout on those wells at these commodity prices within six months. And then that just starts the whole program where you can 
Yeah, Recycled that's pretty compelling. It's pretty compelling back of the napkin math right there. Yeah, and 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 that's uh, <laughs> and then you can prove up a whole bunch of new resource. But the reality is, most of that resource is not true exploration. You're just going and extending the old economic boundaries of these old vertical pools. Which, yeah, why it's very profitable is those typical pools already have roads and infrastructure and power and pipelines all attached. Like your full cycle nature. It really is taken care of here. Like this is half cycle nature, and this is what is really changing the profitability for the junior sector, and why the junior sector really is growing quite rapidly because of the profitability that your half cycle nature of the well economics is, is very profitable. But you don't have to spend all the additional money on on building a that bunch of um, infrastructure to support the the process of that oil. So that's where the oil and gas sector for the juniors is really starting to pick up. Um, but then you go to the Montney in, in terms of the bigger scale, the new completion designs that we're seeing with some of this new technology in terms of the rates that we're starting to see, uh, like in for Montney wells, we're probably seeing about a 15, 20% improvement over, you know, um, your initial production rates versus what we saw last year, which was also an improvement over 2021. Like your gains that you're still oh, making year over okay. year are, um, are impressive versus, in the U.S., you're just not seeing that. Like, it's actually probably deteriorating. And so that's why you're seeing this uh, rotation of capital from, you know, I want to say really everywhere in the world, like with the, especially in the U.S. and even the international investors that are coming back to Canada. I think one of the biggest things that just in terms of the regulatory environment, and I don't want to, you know, highlight too much, but, um, you know, for the last decade, it seemed like every day you would wake up and there's an article in the Globe or national, like in the, in the national media that would say, we got to get rid of oil and gas. We're going to put all these rules against them. We're not going to build any more pipelines. And it was just headline after headline after headline that just really detracts from saying, you know, maybe I don't want to invest in Canadian oil and gas. But I think there's been finally an understanding between the government and the industry saying, let's work on net zero and we'll be a little bit more lenient in terms of um, letting you guys not trying to, we're not going to try and shut you down and, and make a big deal about it every single day, which is starting to allow guys to say, you know what, maybe these companies can be profitable here. So are you saying a little sense of reality has, has entered the conversation? Because you're right, you don't hear that, because that doesn't make headlines, what you just explained. But the other one, which was consistently negative, and you know, that, that storyline, travel outside of Alberta or travel to meet my, see some of my family members in Quebec, there'd be some fiery conversations would fire would go real quick, because it would so be black and white and negative. But those conversations aren't as prevalent as they were even three, four years ago. I can remember Keystone XL, like how often that was in the news every single day. And the per- every day. Every, every day. day. And the perception was if Canada doesn't get this this pipeline built, they can't produce any oil. Like it was like We're done. Was- it's finished. It's it's finished. We're, we're over. Yeah. I know. It was so negative. It was so black and white. The, the, as soon as that day was it was killed, um, you know, these stocks have just done nothing but go up since then. And it's just because it's out of the news. It's out of the, the conversation. So... Investing is is in a weird way. It's half fundamentals, but half understanding investment psychology and what's the kind of the driving (laughs) force behind a lot of this here. And that's where maybe I have a unique position just because you do talk to pretty much every major oil and gas investor. And just in terms of what are they concerned about? What are they looking for here? And um, it's you can kind of get a sense of where momentum is, is changing. And so I'll go back to, you know, that. That that quote that I, I you know talked about last year. This is the most optimistic. It, you know, it truly wasn't. I'm, I'm still at that point here today where it's just, if anything, balance sheets are in better shape. The economics of these plays continue to get better, and these companies aren't saying we're going to flood the market with a whole bunch of new production. We're going to be very prudent. 
maintain our capital discipline and all of our excess cash flow we're just going to give out in terms of buybacks and, and dividends. So it's it's a it's a good sector to be in here still. Uh, I love. I, I I was looking forward to our conversation for a variety of reasons, but I had a sneaking suspicion it was also going to be positive. Which everyone, <laughs> yeah. anyone who knows me knows, I'm very. I'd like to be a realist, but I'm also like to be bullish. I like to fly the. I like to fly the the the, the things that are going well. Flag. Uh, couple questions. You, you know, you talked about your phone ringing quite a bit from U.S. investors that are looking at us at just a different stage of play, uh, you know, third or fourth inning or fifth inning versus the end. We're the bottom of the ninth and everybody's screwed. Um, where else in the world are like, where's your phone ringing from the most or where, you know, or, or is there any ones that surprise you or is it just, geez, they keep calling? <laughs> yeah, it, it's your main centers here still. New York, Texas, that's where, and, okay. and it's just where there's a lot of investors typically and, and guys who are knowledgeable about the, the sector that's still coming. Right. I would still say you're still seeing the generalist investors still not fully participating. So we do this other unique study. It's called our Bloomberg search interest. And so anybody who has a Bloomberg terminal, you typically are a larger money manager. You typically run a family office or, you know, you know, run a big institutional fund. And I always like to see how do, how often do oil and gas tickers get typed into a Bloomberg terminal relative to other sectors here? And if I look at back to beginning of August versus today, energy tickers aren't being typed in any more than other industries. Like the, your, your ranking for energy tickers yep. haven't, hasn't moved up, which just basically tells me your generalist investors still haven't fully appreciated how much this run-up in oil and gas improves the fundamentals. That, that changes over time. And I could go back to June of 2022 when you could see the energy tickers being typed in quite a bit more relative to other sectors. But you still haven't seen the generalist investors come back. And that's what I'm still waiting for here before I say, you know, maybe this is the psychology of the market has gone ahead of itself here. And but until we see that, I think we're still uh, there's still some more running room left, left, left to go here. Interesting. And the old argument that what like once everybody's involved, then we maybe need to start worrying about what's going to happen next. No, and, and, and that's and that, that's exactly it. It's it goes back to the half fundamentals, half psychology here. And yeah, it goes yeah. back to, like if we were to have, like, you know, yes, I'm you know optimistic. Uh, but if we're going back to um, you know end of July, you know when oil prices were you know sixty seven dollars here, now you know it's starting to get a little tough. You know if you look at the U.S. Um, and even Canada, you know, one of the questions we ask in this management survey here is, "What's your break-even cost for um, for, for new oh, production?" Right and yeah. for Canada, it's about sixty-two dollar WTI. Um, the Dallas Fed always does a survey with their EMP companies, and it's typically we do this semi-annual survey, you know, for the last few years here. And the Dallas Fed's typically always about five dollars more or so. Um, so if your break even, if WTI back in August or July was 67 and the break even plays was around $67, like it doesn't work here. Like it's like, whoa, wait a second. Yeah, yeah, the math. Uh, um, that's powerful. That's a powerful, that's a powerful, just easy snapshot to look at that. Right? Yeah. And it just says, you know, suddenly this doesn't work. And I think that's the, the issue that a lot of investors still have of, as I was just to say something negative about the sector. The volatility is still probably too high for a lot of low or medium risk. You know, when you fill out that, you know, yeah. you fuck your broker. <laughs> yes, I do. I what do. kind of risk I rating do. do you want to take? If you sign anything... Which feels kind of arbitrary when you're filling it out sometimes, but they're like, no, because then we can put you in a bucket. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, and mitigate their their exposure of saying that they did or didn't and put you in something outside your comfort zone. No, and, that, and that's, that, that's exactly it. Like, it's, it's the, the compliance issues that continue to get, you know, more and more in depth. Um, 
if you put anything less than high risk, uh, you can't be invested really in energy. It's just even the energy funds are still deemed because high of risk. Vol- because of the volatility. Because, yeah. like, you know, thinking about even the timeline, when you're talking about that extreme volatility, you're talking about eight weeks ago. Like, we're not talking about, you know, like, back in July, and now it's, you know, middle of September. These are short periods of time for significant swings that take a, uh, an industry from profitable or break even to below, you know, almost at the drop of a hat. That, that, that is kind of therefore the definition of volatility, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and the problem is we've we've uh, exported a lot of this volatility over to OPEC now. Just as companies have said, we're not going to increase our production here. Um, you've left, left that now in the hands of effectively Saudi Arabia. And if they say we want to cut a million barrels, suddenly you start doing some quick math and saying, oh, geez, we're going to be at some of the lowest inventory levels that globally we've really ever seen. Um, and which ultimately just guys then start buying you know you know the 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 whole wti strip going out into the future here Uh, interesting so when you look at we're we're alluding to it a little bit but like left hooks black flag black swans i guess that's hard to predict that's the whole point of a black swan but when you start looking at that is it that volatility is there like on a global you know scale what are some of the watchouts that you kind of look for on a broader maybe economic uh snapshot that could then work their way back to impacting energy yeah so just a couple comments on that um the whole very nature of black swans is you just don't never know where it's going to come out. <laughs> That's the whole point of even asking, yeah. what about black swans? Yeah. Well, it defeats the purpose of the definition. Yeah. But I do know for oil and gas, they come out all the time. Like it just, it's never yeah. in anybody's model. And you always look at the WTI strip and just say, where does this come from here? And uh, the strip will never forecast any of these black swan events. And you look at the geopolitical uh, nature of even the Arab uprising back in 2012, you know, with inflation that caused, you know, a lot of the, you know, disruptions in Libya and that. And you just never know where you could see one of those events suddenly okay. come from again. And as more and more supply comes from those type of countries, I think you could see more potential disruptions just from any any one of them here that you just don't really know from. Um yeah, it's just it's just it's just you know, are we going into recession? Are we not going into recession? I think that's yeah. You know, well, that that I think everyone's getting tired of it. Yeah. The, the 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 talk about going to the recession, I feel, has become the recession. <laughs> it's, it's it's become almost in a way here too. Completely, I yeah. know. We'll talk about it long enough, and like, oh yeah, no, that already happened. That time we were talking about it happening, it happened then. Like, but anyway, that's another that's a bigger podcast for another. Yeah. For, for another day. I would say though, like the number three concerns that I I hear from investors: uh, recession is number one. Do I really want to own oil and gas stocks heading? into recession and be like, well, that's been the number one concern for the last 18 months here. Um, yeah. <laughs> are we, I don't know, I don't think anybody actually knows if we are going to or, or not here. Uh, the second biggest concern would be the inventory duration that we have. That's been, uh, you know, everyone talks about here's how many locations we have, but is it a tier one location or are we talking about our tier five locations now? Like that, that's a big difference. What, between, what are we, inclu- what are we including in that? Yeah. Number, right? And I think there's a bit more yeah. realization that, you know, we don't actually have nearly as many tier one locations as we all thought we did here. And then ultimately um, just like the investor sentiment, you know, do generalists, have the desire to come back into this market here? Are they coming, going to come ever back in? And, you know, to be, to be fair, the valuations in the oil and gas sector still continue to remain the most attractive out of any other industry, depending on right. a number of different evaluation metrics you want to use here. Uh, free cash flow, you know, cash flow multiples. But 
I think there is when do these multiples actually start to expand? And I think that's what you you need that broader yeah, generalist okay, base to come in. And the question is when do those generalists come in? I think you know for going back to you know some of these other accounts that we've talked to, we have to start getting back involved in oil and gas because we're seeing our clients sell down our funds, sell out of our funds because they want a fund that does invest in oil and gas. But that's a that's a longer process for you know I want to say you know. Uh, you know, Mr. Uh, just, you know, you're at home, you open your, your uh, investment account and you realize, oh, here's my performance versus the TSX. Why aren't we in? And it just takes a, a longer process for, for the, all this to happen here. That's interesting. You talk about even those evaluations. If you look back even 14, 15, where, where are we discounted? Or do you have even a thought off the top of your head of like where like a, an intermediate oil and gas EMP would be valued uh, from whatever formula, like just you know that enterprise valuation, yeah, I mean, to where it is now. Because I've heard lots of people say, "Hey, we're still at it. It's still technically a deal." If you want to look at historicals, or even just look at the different formulas you can get to to get there. Yeah, I would say like back back five years ago, um, you know, maybe even a little bit more. Like back like ten years ago, we would have been all trading around, you know, eight nine times um, cash flow EV to, EV to EBITDA multiples. Uh, five yeah. years ago, that would have gone down to five times multiple, and today we're closer to probably to three, three and a half. So, interesting. Okay, just a, ste- a steady decline. A steady, over steady that, decline. Over that we're actually finding it more interesting though, and you know, there's a there's a uh, interesting video that we kind of put together here, just on my my uh, Twitter page, but it shows the bifurcation of premium multiples versus um, inexpensive multiples. So, you know, good quality names. These are your royalty names that typically trade at big premiums or your big, you know, Montney names that have a lot of inventory. Those would be considered your premium companies and they typically have premium multiples. But you look at today, the premium multiple has come out of all those premium names and they're really not trading much more than your um, lesser quality names, the ones with high debt, high abandonment liabilities or, you know, lower quality assets here. And so everyone's kind of got lumped together for the sake of you're all in this sector. Let's, let's treat you all the same. Yeah, that's, and, and I think that's the push that you're seeing with investors here saying, um, you know, I look at the sector and everything seems the same. Everyone seems OK. It's hard to tell the difference here. And I think that's what's starting to lead to this conversation. Maybe we need to do a little bit more consolidation here. And ultimately, that, sh- that should still improve the sector. Like, but we have seen a lot of consolidation over the last decade. I think that probably continues. Um, OK. Ultimately, which still should keep a healthy Canadian oil and gas sector going forward. Uh, I'm watching the video right now on your. It's on. I'm on your LinkedIn, and it's uh, kind of showing that I, I, I love the graph. The little bit of movement gets your as a marketer just gets your attention right away. It's well done that <laughs> way. But interesting. So you know, to, to extrapolate that as the generalist over here, man, there's got to be some. There's got to be some deals sitting in, in in those valuations. If everyone's kind of getting brushed with a similar brush, but not everyone has the same uh, fundamentals or financials or, or even strategy or execution, man, there feels like there's got to be some excellent buys in there. Somewhere. Yeah, one of the biggest well, things I would guarantee there is. Yeah. You know, just for compliance. <laughs> purposes we're not allowed to say individual names here on uh on yep, media of that, course. But one of the biggest of things that we always look for is where's the rate of change happening who's doing something different mm. that the market doesn't fully appreciate and and um and a lot of this comes down to who's employing new technology in their frac designs who should be getting better well results and ultimately that should lead to a better valuation as guys start to say you know what this is a very good well and this actually looks – this technology and, and frac design looks applicable probably to all your acreage here, which ultimately should be worth more than where it was today. And that's where you start to see those multiples start to move higher and lower. Um, yeah. But it just needs to be 
it's just, you know, step by step one, you got to know that they're going to do the frac change. And then you got to know that you see the well result. And ultimately, you have to probably see a few more follow up with wells. But every time they do that, you start to see that multiple move up. And it's um it's happening, it, but slowly but surely. It's and that's that's where you kind of look for you know where where are the companies who are going to have the biggest multiple expansions here every year. Which even that formula that you just laid out, that's very challenging for a generalist investor who isn't in the sector, doesn't live it, breathe it, doesn't know the technology. Like you, that implies a high degree of kind of technical understanding of the space to be able to to kind of see that for that crystal ball to even work <laughs> for you as a generalist investor. No, and I think that's, back to the difference of the role you play versus who you're talking to that reaches out to you for that expertise. No, right? and, I, and I think that's actually a, a big struggle with a lot of generalists who come into the market. And mm. the reality is. There's a lot of landmines, or historically used to be a lot of landmines in the sector. You just never – you thought you were buying a good company, looked cheap, and uh, you use all the standard, you know, things that you learn from, you know, business school type of – you know, but um, but that's not really applicable to anything in oil and gas. Like, we, sure, there's, you know, income statements and balance sheets, but it doesn't tell you what's going on in the actual resource. And I think that's where there's a lot of generalists who were, you know – got caught thinking they were buying something but the, there was some I, I want to say like rot it was a bad is a bad word but there's something bad underneath that really allowed the company to go and bankrupt if, and if you don't have yeah. the filter or the knowledge to be able to see that you're using like you said you're looking balance sheets and you're looking at kind of the standard approach but you're missing the actual thing that could make it good or bad yeah and so i think that's mm. still one of the biggest hard yeah. pearls to get the journalist back is they just need to have some confidence that there isn't in landmines, but you know, if uh, one of the biggest things is if you don't have any debt, you can't go bankrupt, and ultimately the, <laughs> the cycle will change, which will probably overcome any um, you know you know bad wells or anything that you have here. But you know, the debt has always been. In- well, you can you can withstand the blow if you're if you're financially solid. That's right, right? That's and I think that's the saying. biggest change yeah, yeah. here in the sector. You know, back five years ago, the average standard debt to cash flow metric that everyone always wanted to have was you got to be two, two times and you're good. Now I would say the standard is 0.5 or below. And and mm. if you are above that, you're, you start to get painted with a, a different brush that just, just won't attract that generalist investor here. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate the uh, bonus. We, we could wrap right here because that was fantastic and exactly the conversation I was hoping to have. But curious, I've had some conversations recently about some concerns of individuals in the sector around kind of that midstream market under your look at the refining space and the long-term plays that those those that sector runs on and the big investments and the returns. And now the I've heard some, some individuals express some concern of like as refining capacity starts to potentially drop, as maybe some of those companies don't invest in big overhauls and maintenance cycles that take 20 years to pay back that we could have a real bottleneck kind of created from that perspective. Any thoughts on that? And maybe we're going way out in left field. That's why I saved this for the end. I was curious kind of your perspective around if you look at all the different tiers, knowing you're very boots on the ground in terms of the companies you deal with. I think what you've seen is some of the refinery margins really have like exploded. And and I'll point to, uh, you know, diesel fuel prices here just in the last few months have really exploded and, in, and been quite a bit more expensive than just, you know, your regular, net, um, you know, gasoline prices here. And it's just because you don't have the refinery complexes to, you know, supply that. And ultimately, you're going to have to just import more of that, that product overseas, which just ultimately just adds more cost to the overall basin. But yeah. it goes back to, as we see more and more, you know, rhetoric saying we're moving off fossil fuels here, no need to invest, no need to invest in a 40-year project, 
are we really going to have oil and gas 40 years from now? Well, if we're not, um, because the IEA and all these other organizations saying, hey, we're not, um, I'm not going to invest, which ultimately leads to that destruction of that reinvestment, especially into the the long-term projects. Just even going with the oil sands, those are 40-year projects up there. And when was the last time you saw a greenfield project being announced? Like you just you just don't anymore. You don't. Well, I've some statistics on how many years it's in Canada since we've announced a major project project like that on any scale, whether it be energy or, or otherwise. But that's again, that's another conversation. So you know, you're talking about earlier about smaller, lighter, you know, 1.5 million, get your payback in six months. You've got that cycle shortening and becoming the faster ability to bring bring stuff on. But if I've got nowhere to send it, not even how to get it there, but to know where to get it to from a refinement perspective, oh man, we just create other, we just, we just move the bottlenecks around the yeah, board. That's, that's true kind of thing. <laughs> but, you know, I think that's... Not, not to be negative, yeah. not to be negative here at the end. But, but mm-hmm. with that TMAX opening up and just, you know, the more rail, like it's just, and just, you're not seeing the growth, like there is um, export mm-hmm. capacity for a lot more of these EMP companies here in Canada than what we've ever probably been used to. And it's just, it goes back to... You know, if the differentials start to blow out, you can quickly stop your drilling program and wait for things to come back in. And when you have that short yeah, cycle yeah. payout, you and and effectively very little debt, you can afford to wait until that comes, until that improves, and then you go back at it again. And I think that is probably the number one thing that's different this time around versus what we've seen in the last you know okay. decade. That ability to be agile, but also to be yeah, to be able to withstand the, the the volatility, which we know is just becoming, like you said, more frequent and more extreme. Yep. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Jeremy, amazing conversation. Thank you for your insights and just taking your time. I appreciate being able to get into a long form chat about this because we could go on all yeah. morning. But uh, well, I appreciate you, um, you probably have other things on your on your agenda. Hey, what's the best way, Jeremy McCray? I uh, creep on you on LinkedIn. What's the best way? I know you're on Twitter, BNN. What's the best ways for people to follow you and learn more about what you? Yeah, have to say? Jeremy McCray CFA on Twitter would probably be the best uh, the best way where we put a lot of the news. Uh, most of our stuff that goes on that goes on there. Just Jeremy McCray okay. CFA. I'm- Amazing. And you're on BNN, a pretty regular cycle. Yeah, and yeah, different news kind of thing. So just when there's topical things, we just, uh, I think it's just important to kind of sometimes highlight, you know, everything good that's going on in oil and gas here, despite some of the doom and gloom that we, you know, hear otherwise. I, uh, I'll give you a high, I'll give you a virtual high five on yeah. that one. Jeremy, thanks for coming on. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to boldly say again, I'll see you in a year because I love these. Okay, let's come back. Where, where, where are we now? Sooner or later, one of these conversations maybe not be as positive as they've been so far, but I'm liking the train you and I are on yeah, here. Yeah, I like it too. Anyways, take care, Tyler. <laughs> thanks. Bye now. You too. Thank you.